Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Will. I'm Skip, and today we're thrilled to have Julie Z with us. Professor Z is the professor of American Studies at UC Davis and the founding director of the Environmental Justice Project for UC Davis's John Muir Institute for the Environment. Z's research investigates environmental justice, inequality, race, gender, power, and urban community activism. She works in collaboration with environmental scientists, engineers, social scientists, humanists, and community-based organizers on a wide range of research projects from California to New York and even to China. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Z. Thanks for the invite. To get started, we'd like to ask all of our guests to talk about an inflection point, a moment in their personal or professional life when they had to change direction. Could you provide such a moment for us? Well, I was an, an English major. Um, I thought I had no idea what I was going to do. And I took this uh, race, poverty, and the environment class at UC Berkeley with Carl Anthony, who is a major leader of an ur- environmental justice and urban issues in the Bay Area. And that class kind of changed my worldview entirely. So I ended up doing more internships around environmental justice. I did an anti-toxics um, work in Boston and that with my coursework, it really changed the direction point of my passion. So um, we saw in your biography, um, your position at UC Davis is in the American Studies Department. Um, you also got your, your PhD in that field. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of explain to us what American Studies is and how that kind of ends up linking with um, your environmental justice work? That's a really great question. Most people don't really know what American Studies is as a field. I teach an American Studies class, and there's always about a third of the class that thinks it's a patriotism, American exceptionalism major, and it is very much not. Uh, The field comes a little bit out of that tradition in the 50s, kind of a a reaction to sort of anti-communism, you know, that America was better and blah, blah, blah. And after the 60s, because of different social movements, it became much more focused on ethnic studies, gender, justice, and sort of oppositional approaches to America. I knew none of this when I went to grad school. Uh, I was an organizer in New York City, working with an organization called New York City Environmental Justice Alliance. And what I knew was that there were certain kinds of questions that I really was interested in that my organizing work didn't give me a chance to ask or find out about. So I'd go to these hearings and the community members would be really upset because seven out of the eight diesel bus depots were in Harlem. And in the context of the hearings, you have a very limited capacity to ask. You know, you can't really ask historical questions or questions about race and zoning. But for me, those were the kinds of questions that I was really interested in. Uh, So I went to grad school because I wanted a space to do that kind of research and not even necessarily to be a professor. In fact, I didn't, that wasn't the goal. The American Studies program at NYU was a program that was really focused on social movements and research. And a lot of the people had sort of atypical career paths. So I went to graduate school with people who were labor organizers, anti-prison organizers, Hawaiian sovereignty rights uh, organizers. And so there was a culture of um, social justice and um, research. And it happened to be in American studies because of this other history. But I didn't know that. I sort of stumbled into it kind of randomly. I didn't apply to many grad schools because I wanted to be a professor. I just had a very particular question that I wanted to ask. And this program let me do that. 
And what just more specifically drew you into getting grad school, especially because as you, as you said, after college, you were just working on the ground already. What, mm -hmm. what led you back to the academy? Well, like I said, there were those kinds of questions that I just was very interested in. And I think this was from my undergraduate experience. Um, I had taken, I was an English major, but I had taken a lot of ethnic studies and peace and conflict studies. And the kind of scope of those, that kind of inquiry was, was not like allowed in the context of an organizing um, world. You know, it's like about bringing people out to the meeting or doing um, testimony. And um, it was a certain kind of work. And the kind of intellectual questions I had, which were also political questions, um, just that wasn't part of like my job description. And so I think I felt a little bit um, frustrated by that. So that's why I wanted to. I didn't think I was going to be a professor. I thought I was going to work at, you know, go back to a nonprofit or, you know, work at a foundation or some other kind of capacity like that. So it all kind of was a little bit accidental. We've been talking about your transition from activism to academics. You've said yourself that you mm -hmm. think that the role of the scholar-activist hybrid is a central part of the environmental justice mm -hmm. field. To what extent do you still see your work as a professor, as an academic, a part of social justice activism rather than just the kind of strict research looking for truth and exploration in the way that maybe a professor in the natural sciences would? Mm -hmm. It's a very big part of the work um, that I've done with the exception of the book on the eco-city in China, which was a different kind of research. It was much more about top-down kind of politics, environmental politics, um, sort of a top-down scale looking at uh, communities in that sense. Um, most of my work, both in New York, but also in the Central Valley, uh, has been really focused on the, the bottom-up kind of approach um, to how communities engage with these ideas around markets and around government and around policy and how they get enacted um, and the and how community members kind of engage in that uh, those debates. So uh, I don't do work in um, Southern California, but you know I know there's a ton of environmental justice issues down here, just you know from from knowing folks in in the region. And uh, California is a great place to continue to do that kind of work. So I think there's a lot of uh, important work that still needs to be done. Um, and in my approach has always been that the community-based approach and the scholar activism makes the research better. It makes the science better. It makes the policy better and so on. And there's a ton of um, scholars who work mostly in the strongest ones are kind of in public health and air quality. Um, but they, they have produced a body of work that look at, say, air quality, highways, and you know, race and class. Um, so for me, there is no uh, research that doesn't take those voices seriously. So you've got strong ties to New York, um, and and you mentioned your initial community organizing began there. And um, one of your one of your first books is called Noxious New York: The Racial Politics of Urban Health and Environmental Justice, and uh, it came out in two thousand six. And it explored uh, the strong links between race and environmental quality. Could you just talk a little bit about what led you to um, ended up researching that and uh, just the story behind the book? Yeah, the book uh, came out in two thousand six, but a lot of the work uh, was based on the organizing work that I did uh, after I graduated from college uh, in the late 90s. Um, well, I graduated in 95, and then I worked for a few years. Um, so there was a lot of uh, reaction to uh, what happened on the ground in the 90s around privatization, deregulation, kind of the rise of neoliberalism. So that when neoliberalism sort of 
began generating, you know, all of the the dominant ways and in, um, in, in relating to the world in the '90s, you know, with with the you know WTO activism and so on, there was a lot of that uh, discussion going on about what neoliberalism was going to look like on the ground. And what I found really interesting, you know, because I had gone to Berkeley and I, you know, had understood a lot of the work um, in that context was to think about the kind of on the ground local impacts in these particular black and Latino neighborhoods in New York um, as being a response to neoliberalism. Uh, that's not how they're talked about. You know, they're looked at as policy disputes over, you know, can this uh, power plant build here or can this, you know, incinerator build here. But for me, the looking at these sites without understanding the broader political um, context or ideological shifts just it didn't make any sense so it seems to it, it seemed obvious to me that that's what was happening um, so that's why I wanted to do that research um, because people weren't talking about it in that way I think now people understand that that's what is happening but in the 90s and early 2000s that was just I mean we were just starting with the discussions around neoliberalism Neoliberalism is a term that's thrown around a lot in academics. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's one that's not used as often, at least right now, in mm -hmm. our political discourse. Mm -hmm. Can you explain, especially in the context of environmental studies and environmental justice, the specific policies you're talking about and you're researching yeah. in that context? Yeah, I think I'll talk about it tonight and also in the talk, but uh, neoliberalism is basically, a, at this point, a hegemonic ideology around markets and uh, marketization. Uh, it goes with a, a series of policy choices, primarily privatization of services, deregulation, et cetera. Um, in terms of sort of the cultural idea, I think it would be the, uh, the idea that markets and financialization is what sort of drives institutions. Um, you could see it a lot maybe less here at uh, your private school, but I've worked in UC for, you know, 15 years. And so there's lots of debates about neoliberalism in education. You know, the idea of seeing your education as like a private investment in yourself as opposed to a public common good. And so neoliberalism is um, the, the ideological shift that's just sort of the common sense now. Um, and so the way it plays out in environmental terms is um, that the markets are the answer. Um, that the individual subject, that private property, um, uh, liberalism in the classic you know, sense um, are the only ways or the best ways to get at um, whatever outcome you want. So does that make sense? Yeah. I've personally sat through an introduction economics course mm -hmm. in which I was lectured to about how a market-based approach to reducing things like emissions through a cap-and-trade system or a yes. carbon tax is objectively the most efficient way mm -hmm. to reduce emissions or solve any other environmental problem, whatever is posed to you. What is that approach missing, and what do we have to gain from something that looks for a more bottom-up approach or that rejects the assumptions you're talking about? Well, I think pretty much every econ department in the country, with the exception of like two is a, a neoliberal free market approach to economics. <laughs> when when you take this as the sort of common sense and the only way that you can do things, you know. Um, and I think the social justice approach or say climate justice, they say, okay, well, cap and trade and emissions 
Um, there are there are different communities that can operate within markets in different ways um, that have to do with um, access to those markets, that have to do with historical exclusions. Um, oftentimes, it's uh, structured on race and class. Um, so the environmental justice movement in California has been quite vigorous in um, saying, okay, well, uh, market-based solutions are not the answer because markets sort of created a lot of these problems. And, you know, through looking at research that, you know, in the different ways the modeling that what they do is actually create increased emissions on the local level, even if you might, you know, reduce carbon in one way. So um, I think environmental justice and bottom-up approaches are trying to look at things holistically and say, okay, well, you can't sort of, you know, reduce everything to kind of widgets and, you know, the market is not the most logical and pure way to deal with this stuff. Looking into kind of government responses mm -hmm. to all the problems you've looked at, um, one example uh, I've seen um, from Chicago and uh, Mayor Emanuel ran uh, as part of his platform um, when he was running for mayor was uh, getting uh, every kid access, walking access to a park. Mm -hmm. um, how have you seen um, the effects of urbanization upon communities that you've been researching? Mm -hmm. How has that hurt them and what are some ways that we can address that? You know, that's a really good question. I think when I think about environmental justice and as a sort of research area, but also a policy arena and the 25 years since I've been thinking about it, in a lot of ways, the early part of environmental justice, like in the 90s, was really looking at facilities and industrial pollution. And then it became a lot more about looking at environmental amenities, you know, and who has access to things like, you know, clean food and um, like good things, not just sort of the negative um, externalities of them. Um, and so that's been part of the evolution that's happened, which I think is good. Uh, I think sometimes it's been interesting when you ask me about Noxious New York, in the environmental justice like communities in the 1990s, when they were fighting these particular facilities, they had no idea what was going to hit them, like in terms of gentrification and inequality. And so these communities that um, like Williamsburg or uh, Sunset Park, you know, they got hit with a whole other set of problems, um, which aren't object aren't purely environmental, you know, in an emission sense, but have had um, very strong social displacement, you know, impacts. So it's been interesting to think about how, um, you know, the those groups had no idea. It was like a, a tidal wave of, you know, some scholars call it green gentrification and so on. So. The idea that you clean up these communities and then it sort of gets more high valued and then, you know, you're sort of priced out of them. So I think uh, thinking about environmental justice as both a set of, you know, dealing with negative things, but also positive, you know, amenities. But then, you know, thinking about the complex link between social, environmental and racial um, and class justice issues has always been like a hallmark of environmental justice movements. And so um, the environmental justice movements have like many more different kinds of battles than the sort of early phase of like, okay, there's this problem and we call it this and we need to quantify that it exists. And now it's like, wow, like who knew that Williamsburg was going to be like the most expensive, you know, place to live in Manhattan. I mean, if you grew up in New York at a certain time or you were, you know, involved in those fights in the 90s, it's, it's literally unbelievable. So um, again, this goes back to the neoliberalism and the market's um, approach to things. And so I think environmental justice has always done a very good job of saying that, you know, these complex set of things have to be thought of um, together as opposed to in isolation. I'd like to drill down a bit more into the connection between two of those things in particular that mm -hmm. we've been mentioning, which is environmental justice and racial issues. Mm -hmm. I think when most people uh, out there who aren't environmentalists maybe mm -hmm. think about sustainability or environmental concerns, mm -hmm. they think about recycling. Mm -hmm. When they think about racial issues, they think about discrimination mm -hmm. and segregation. Mm -hmm. 
uh, you've argued and the introduction of your newest book argues that environmental crises and social inequality are in fact twins. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that thesis and what the connection between the two issues is? Yeah, I think that um, what that introduction tries to argue is that if you take sustainability but you don't take a social justice approach to it, you're basically just going to be like your professor, you know, making that climate, um, you know, carbon trading argument. Like you can't, um, if you take sustainability but don't think about social justice, then you're just going to keep on reenacting the hierarchies that already exist. Um, there are lots of different, you know, examples where we try to argue in through the different case studies in the book, you know, that social justice makes the environmental policy better um, because, you know, like I said before, you know, you can take different kinds of questions into account. It makes the, the research sort of more supple and so on. Um, but there's also lots of examples, I think, that were not true in the 90s or they it wasn't that they weren't not true, but they weren't thought of in that way. So thinking about like police violence, you know, as a sustainability issue. Um, I, the Sierra Club in the 1990s was uh, had an anti-immigrant like block that was trying to take over. And the idea was that, you know, the that that if there was more immigration, it was going to be bad for the environment. Like so they came very close to sort of taking over the organization. And so that was a very big part of the anti-immigrant thread. And that thread still exists now. I mean, those organizations still exist. Um, but the, what you have seen is like mainstream environmental groups have shifted, you know, so that Sierra Club had a had a platform to support Black Lives Matter as well. So um, and they, you know, make an argument about, you know, the, the sustainability of life and um, black life and, you know, how it's connected to sort of air quality and police condition, uh, police killings and so on. So I think that, you know, you see uh, a lot of. Um, What's been interesting, again, from someone who's studied these things for like 20-something years, is that, you know, in the 90s, you kind of had to explain a lot more how these things were connected. And now, you know, it's like you can say, oh, well, you know, Freddie Gray had a lot of lead poisoning, and that's not coincidental. You know, there's a relationship between lead poisoning, I'll talk about Flint tonight, you know, and race and the history of, you know, urban um, decline, you know, or, or, you know, it's not decline, it was sort of government sponsored. And then, you know, the, the destruction of black communities and black life. Um, and, you know, people can kind of understand that, like, that's not as surprising to people because of social media and so on. So I think that, you know, there's always been a strong connection between lack of sustainability and lack. Um, and that's what environmental justice is, you know, trying has always tried to do. And so there's more of an awareness, you know, if you say like Standing Rock or Flint, like people kind of intuitively get it in a way that wasn't true. You had to do a lot more like explaining you know, in the 90s. And now, you know, I think that's that's a good thing about social media is that it makes the connections like people can, you know, get them in an easier way. A meme does a huge number, <laughs> a huge uh, thing for people. So another one of those connections that's really uh, grown in, in prominence in recent years is the connection between um, natural disasters mm -hmm. and environmental justice. Yes. And um, I know in the environmental community, mm -hmm. um, resilience is a really important buzzword right now is is how do cities and states mm -hmm. and, and governments respond to natural disasters. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we've seen a lot of recent examples, obviously, of natural disasters, mm -hmm. but you can go back to even Hurricane Katrina right. and, and how that played out. Um, can you just talk a little bit about uh, resilience and how you see that um, and the importance of that in mm -hmm. environmental justice? Mm -hmm. 
That's a great question. And, you know, there's so many things that you could say about all aspects of that. You know, even, you know, I would say uh, Hurricane Katrina is kind of like this opening point, inflection point of this, everything that's followed. I mean, and Hurricane Maria is kind of the best and purest, like, illustration of the the horrors of where natural and social disaster kind of get um, conjoined. And, you know, it's very much tied to, obviously, you know, race and um, the political you know, political context of Puerto Rico and so on. Um, but the idea of like disposability and some lives being worth, worth a lot less. Um, I think social, uh, social disasters, environmental disasters just kind of make that like lay that bare. Um, I think in terms of resilience, um, the idea in the climate justice movement, which climate justice and environmental justice are very intimately connected, um, is that climate change hits poor people and people, um, of color or people around the world, poorer countries, worse, even though they have a lot less responsibility for it. Um, and so, you know, that's a sort of classic environmental justice, you know, um, frame, which is the people who are least responsible are hardest hit. And climate change is like a very strong example of that. Um, in terms of where resilience comes in, a lot of the climate justice groups are really in, um, involved in thinking about um, just transition, you know, from sort of a carbon focused, you know, economy um, and focused on um, just recovery, you know, from uh, disasters and so on. So there are lots of groups on the ground, like in Puerto Rico and also um, in the diaspora, the Puerto Rican diaspora, like in New York and so on. Uh, one of the groups that I work with, um, Uprose, I've worked with them for 20 something years, has really focused on having resilience um, be a really focused also on race and community as well. So that um, the disaster doesn't become a cover for uh, sort of displacement. And, you know, if you follow anything with Puerto Rico and Naomi Klein, you know, writing about it right now, there's a whole like land grab around you know these kind of tech bros like we can go in and redo this and you know but that resilience from a justice standpoint um takes like the communities that live there and those histories and you know that perspective like at its core rather than kind of as you know the least important because they're the like least able to economically you know invest or recover and so on so i think that you know you'll just see more and more of this so unfortunately, we only have time for one more question, and it's a question we ask all of our guests. Mm -hmm. uh, what is your personal definition of success, and what advice would you give to students in defining success for themselves? Well, I think success is um, making meaning, you know, in whatever endeavor you want to do. Um, and, and I think that it's success comes when you think less about success. <laughs> <laughs> but you just, you know, find things that you are passionate about um, and that you can connect to and so on. So um, and maybe this is just the uh, I can say this because I'm old and, you know, it's it, it was easier because I didn't have debt. And, all, you know, it's a, I, I didn't have to come out of the, the and also, you know, the context in which you all are becoming adults is very different from mine in the 90s and stuff. So, but I do actually believe that, which is, you know, a lot of times not knowing how your path is going to go will let you be kind of more flexible and, you know, um, to adapt, to figure out like who you are and what's your contribution to the world, because there's a lot of issues and problems and stuff. And I think finding meaning and purpose, you know, in that uh, is what, what will success will feel like. On that note, I'd like to thank you, Professor Z, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.